Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. Today, we have a great show for you. We're talking to Caroline E. Light, who teaches at Harvard University about her new book, That Pride of Race and Character, The Roots of Jewish Benevolence in the Jim Crow South, published by New York University Press in 2014. Uh, So thanks very much for uh, coming on the show today, Caroline. Thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. How did you come to write um, this book, That Pride of Race and Character? So the book originated as my doctoral dissertation in history. Um, I was a graduate student at the University of Kentucky's uh, history department, um, studying uh, gender and ethnic history of the United States. And my particular interest was in immigration and Jewish culture and life in the United States. And I very fortunately stumbled on some records, um, a whole archive, really a a, a researcher's dream of a treasure trove of archives in um, the Bremen Center in Atlanta, Georgia. And, And basically what I found were hundreds of case files, um, from an orphan home that had been established in Atlanta in 1889 for Jewish orphans. And I found an amazing trove of uh, some records that had actually been cataloged and were in the Bremen Center and others that were actually in storage in an unair conditioned storage unit in Dunwoody, Georgia. And I found in these records some incredible stories about Jewish benevolence in the Jim Crow South. And that's really where the whole project started. That's great. Um, So, yes. So tell us a bit about the establishment of these Southern Jewish charitable and mutual aid organizations. And uh, in particular, how how these uh, establishment of these institutions fit into Jewish claims to citizenship and belonging in the United States South? So um, to, to, to get to that, you kind of have to go pretty far back. Um, one thing I discovered is that um, the first and the largest Jewish settlements in what would later become the United States actually took place in the South. Um, uh, colonies like Georgia and South Carolina were relatively religiously tolerant, way more so than a lot of the northern colonies. So we actually see the establishment of fairly substantial Jewish communities um, in the early republic. And so uh, I discovered that the very first Hebrew Hebrew benevolent society um, in the whole United States in the early republic was established in Charleston, South Carolina, um, which was 
one of the largest Jewish settlements. So I started there really. And, and my specialty is more in modern history. So more of the detail of the book is focused on um, late 19th and early 20th century histories. But really it started with this idea that actually it's to the South where we should look for the precursors to what would become an entire network of uh, Jewish benevolence in the United States. Um, and then uh, in the, it was in the uh, 19th century that we see the establishment of two Jewish orphan homes, one in New Orleans in the 1850s and the one that I mentioned earlier in Atlanta in 1889. Together, these two orphan homes covered um, the, all the states of the South. So if you were a Southern Jewish family that fell on hard times in the late 19th century, your orphan children or uh, temporarily uh, impoverished children would likely go to one of those two institutions. Um, so that's sort of where I started. Now, unfortunately, the New Orleans home, the older of the homes, uh, no longer has its its records. It, they were lost. Part of them, uh, many of them were lost in Hurricane Katrina. Um, but there are no more existing records about the individual kids who were in that home. However, the Atlanta home maintained meticulous records starting with its uh, instantiation in the late 1880s. So um, I had to build the information on the New Orleans home through uh, records from the various benevolent society meetings in New Orleans. I found some of those in Cincinnati at Hebrew Union College, um, but I found a much richer uh, archive of information about the actual children and the families who were served by the Atlanta home. So most of the book focuses on that archive since that's the one with more details in it. Great. So, so what were uh, Jewish communities in the South trying to do with these mutual aid organizations and charitable organizations? What motivated them? Yeah, so they're actually kind of different. So um, the New Orleans home, which was established in the 1850s, came about because of yellow fever epidemics. Um, New Orleans was um, very frequently stricken by these horrible episodes of yellow fever. And the children who were orphaned in the wake um, of those sicknesses were didn't have any place to go. Um, there were also many women who were widowed uh, by yellow fever epidemics. So originally, when the New Orleans home was established in 1856, it was established to care for not just orphans, but widows. So if you no longer had your husband or your father, you no longer had a means of subsistence. So um, originally that home was established to serve uh, widows and orphans. Now, the Atlanta home emerged much later in 1889, um, and, and that was a variety of different reasons. Um, originally, B'nai Brith had sponsored uh, the building of a Southern orphan home because New Orleans couldn't handle the volume, um, especially when Eastern European immigration started to to become a major phenomenon in the 1880s. So there wasn't there was so much demand for orphan homes and there wasn't enough uh, institutional 
strength to meet that demand. So in 1889, Atlanta was chosen to be the site of this other Jewish orphan home. Um, many of those uh, children who were served there uh, were children of immigrants who uh, fell on hard times or um, a, a mother would die leaving a child motherless and um, the father would be unable to find someone to care for the child. So the child would go sometimes temporarily to the orphan home. So we find cases of many partial orphans or half orphans who have one parent, but that parent isn't able to care for them. So they were actually instituted for slightly different reasons. But by the time you get to the late 19th century, um, the wave of Eastern European um, migration has become so substantial. And so many of those people coming from Eastern Europe were impoverished and really struggled to survive. Uh, so that's where you see a lot of the kids um, at the at the turn of the 20th century. So you write about these institutions uh, being set up as a sort of a mix of altruism and self-interest. Can you explain that a little more for us? Absolutely. Um, one of the arguments of the book is, um, well, well, first, first and foremost, what I discovered in my research on both of these institutions was that these were cutting edge. They were absolutely outstanding and exemplary institutions. And the people who established them intended them to be the cutting edge orphan institutions. Um, they did everything they could to ensure that the children received the best in terms of education and training to be good citizens. And when you compare them even to the Northern Jewish institution, which were quite exemplary, the South, these two Southern institutions invested so much in ensuring that the children grew up well-rounded. They had recreational opportunities. They went camping. They, one of them had a roller skating rink and tennis courts. So one of the one of the kids who um, did an oral interview in the 1990s, so a former inmate at the Atlanta home said, from what I know of orphan homes, this was like a country club. And he was obviously joking. Nobody wanted to be an orphan home. But but, but one of the things I discovered was these were exemplary, exemplary spaces um, for orphan care. So now that said, part of the reason why I believe these places were so good at what they did was because there was a, just, they, they emerged during a very critical moment um, in the South, um, especially the Atlanta home. So the Atlanta home is established just after the fall of Reconstruction. And in the South, we see in the 1880s, the convergence of both Eastern European immigration, which we know disproportionately most of those immigrants went north, but a fairly substantial population went to the south. Um, and at the same time, this is during the nadir of race relations. Um, what I mean by that is it's the time period after Reconstruction has ended in the 1870s um, and uh, African-Americans have lost through um, through Jim Crow, through literacy tests, through poll taxes, through violence and, tim and intimidation, most of the rights and privileges and protections that they, um, that they won in the wake of the Civil War. So we see the convergence of a racial regime of terror, really, taking place at the same time that this very large group of immigrants is coming into the nation. So what I found is that these orphan homes adapted 
to ensure that all of the children of impoverished brethren were going to be trained to become exemplary citizens of the South, which really means being on the right side of the color line. That's where I discovered that there was actually quite a fine line there between altruism or benevolence and this desperate need for Jews to fall on the right side of the color line. So a lot of this was about an investment in self-preservation and ensuring that the children of impoverished brethren did not fall on the public purse, because that would be bad for the collective um, assimilation of Jews. You write about this speech where this metaphor is given about painting the fence post white. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Right. Yeah. I open with this amazing vignette that I read. Um, that was in, I believe, one of the annual reports. So one of these things, one of the one of the really rich um, sources that I base the book on um, happens to be the records of the yearly meetings for the boards of overseers for these institutions. And um, Ralph Sun was the superintendent of uh, the orphan home in Atlanta. And at one point, um, very shortly uh, after Leo Frank um, died because of through lynching, um, he gave a speech about painting the fence and how the fence has to be painted white and you can't just leave it alone. And if you leave the fence alone, it will soon be black. Um, and for me, that seemed like it was not, it was not an accident that he used a sort of black or white metaphor in his description of how to care for orphans. What he was communicating to his audience was orphans needed exemplary care. They needed constant supervision and an investment of time and energy of the powerful members of the Jewish community. What, what Ralph Sun was doing in that moment was recruiting the help and support of wealthy individuals in the Jewish Atlanta community to continue investing their time and their money in uplifting these children of the poor to ensure that they would not be negative reflections on Jewishness, but instead would be exemplary citizens and would help ensure that in the dominant Southern imagination that Jewishness meant good citizenship. Um, so it, it was part of a speech that I excerpted because I thought it was a fascinating metaphor for how much a person has to invest in ensuring that these children grew up to be good citizens. What is an aguna, and how did these Jewish benevolent institutions deal with them? The aguna, yes. Yeah, so there's, um, I believe, chapter four is on um, how the organization dealt with agunot. So aguna means um, a abandoned wife um, for observant Jewish women. Uh, get the only way to get a divorce to end a marriage was through a get. Or if your husband was dead, you had to have documentation that he had passed away. But if your husband simply got up and left you um, and you were an observant Jewish woman, you could not simply remarry. You had to get a formal divorce or a get 
from your husband. So this was actually quite a problem, um, not just in the South, obviously, but among Jewish immigrants, um, particularly Eastern European observant um, Jewish immigrants, because if a husband abandoned his wife, she was left without any, without a breadwinner and without any ability to remarry. Um, this put many women in a very precarious position. So chapter four, I look at the different kinds of strategies that benevolent organizations tried to deploy as a means of protecting these women and and ensuring that they and their children were cared for. It was very uh, difficult. It was very complex um, because the institutions did not want to transgress uh, Jewish law and um, did not want to uh, force these women to undermine their religiosity. And yet the sort of impulse towards modernity and the impulse towards um, preservation of the community would sort of command that these women would simply remarry so that they could have breadwinners and no longer be um, on the public dole. So in some cases, we see women actually giving up their religiosity uh, because they can't get a divorce from their husbands. In many cases, husbands would move away, change their name and remarry. Um, which was illegal. So um, <laughs> illegal, not just in Jewish law, but I mean, in, in actual um, civilian, in, in criminal courts, that was illegal. Mm. Um, so for many of these institutions, there were uh, women who were abandoned and um, they, they sometimes gave out subsidies to mothers uh, who could demonstrate that they could be good mothers and raise their children in the proper way um, culturally and socially. Um, and so the institution would sometimes give them a small subsidy, but it was very hard if the woman was an aguna because technically she was still married and her husband should be the one to support her. So it left these women in a horrible situation. Mm. Maybe we could talk a bit more specifically. You uh, mentioned the case of a woman called Rebecca Weiss Blakeney. Yes. And this is, this is the woman in chapter five. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and she, tell us a bit more about her. her absolutely. Case. Yeah. Her story, I actually, um, she was one of the first files that I found when I mentioned stumbling on that unair conditioned storage unit full of metal filing cabinets. Um, someone had said that there were some old files from uh, a Jewish social work organization in there. And, I found this file and it was uh, all hand typed um, with some handwritten notes in the margins um, and the paper was literally falling apart. Um, but it was from a woman in the depression era in, in Fort Pierce, Florida. So I mentioned before that the two different orphan homes uh, oversaw the orphans in, in two separate areas. So Florida was one of the regions um, covered by the Atlanta Hebrew Orphan Home. So this woman, um, who I'm calling Rebecca because I changed the names of people who were aid recipients to protect their anonymity, this huge case file documents this woman's life where she becomes a widow and she has two young daughters. 
Um, so she's actually not, she's not an ab- abandoned, uh, woman at all. She's, um, uh, she's a widow and, uh, she struggles to get by and her in-laws try to help her for a while. And then, um, and then she over time finds a non-Jewish man and marries him and drops off the record entirely. Like she stops communicating with the orphan home. Um, and this is after they had spent quite a few years sending her a subsidy to keep her and her children healthy and safe. Um, so it's a fascinating story of how a woman who had once considered herself, um, I think she considered herself originally quite orthodox, um, gave up her orthodoxy in the interest of finding stability for herself and her children. Um, in her last letter to the orphan home, she says, I I'm Jewish still, but I have found some stability for my children. So this is a sacrifice I have to make. That's paraphrasing what she wrote. But basically after that, she no longer corresponded um, with the institution because she saw, she perceived that it could be a mark against her, that it would be embarrassing to have to be known by her new husband as having received charitable assistance. Okay. And, um, would you be able to tell us a bit about the place of Sephardim in the in the south and um, oh Sephardim yes yeah, the case you particularly mention is uh, Rachel Ferreira yes yes and and she actually did start out as a case where they thought that she was an Aguna but turned out that her husband had not abandoned her this is another thing about Agunat Agunat is that it wasn't always clear if the husbands had actually abandoned them or if they'd simply gone away trying to find a way to make a living. Um, so the interesting thing about the Sephardim is that the original inhabitants of uh, colonial North America were predominantly Sephardim, and they were originally folks from um, they were they were Western Sephardim. These were the people who were descended from conversos. Uh, who had uh, converted or pretended to convert to Christianity to um, to escape uh, the Inquisition. So many of these folks early in colonial times were actually fairly well off, um, educated. They were very few in numbers, but many of these folks sell, um, ended up settling in, as I was mentioning before, in uh, Georgia um, and in South Carolina and becoming quite prosperous. So later on, what happens is right around the turn of the 20th century, we have a much larger wave of Sephardim who are predominantly from the East. So you get a lot of people from Turkey, um, some some from Greece. There's also some who actually come from the South American continent. And the difference with these folks, um, they end up numbering somewhere around 30,000 total between about 1890 and maybe 1920. Um, Many of them are are impoverished. Uh, They have very little when they come over. Um, they're, They're in a lot of ways very similar to the Eastern Europeans, except instead of speaking Yiddish, um, many of them speak Greek or they speak Ladino, which is like a hybrid language made up of medieval Spanish um, and Hebrew. Um, so they seem very foreign 
when they show up in the United States. And not as many of them, obviously most of them go north, as do many Eastern Europeans, but a fairly substantial population of them end up settling in places like Montgomery, Alabama, and Atlanta, Georgia. So I stumbled on several really interesting stories about Sephardic families who um, really struggle, especially during the Depression. Um, and the Ferreira fa- family um, comes in, uh, lands in, I think first they start in Montgomery and then they migrate to Atlanta and really fall on hard times in the 1930s because uh, Victor Ferreira, the father, can't make a living in Atlanta. So he goes to California in search of work so that he can support his family. And originally, when they first meet him, the benevolent institution believes that uh, when they first meet Rachel, they think that she has been abandoned. And in fact, it's possible that she herself believes her, herself and her children to have been abandoned by her husband. Right. So the case starts out that way, that there's an abandoned woman in Atlanta and we don't know what to do with her and we don't want to put her children in the orphan home, but we want to protect her somehow. And what they eventually discover is that the father's in Atlanta and they need to bring him back and help him find work. So the case goes on for many, many years, and the family has a lot of difficulty being self-sustaining. But what I find most fascinating um, in this record, among many fascinating things, is that the institution, the benevolent institution, in this case, it's the Montefiore Relief Association, not the orphan home, they continue supporting the family, even though the the mother is sometimes less than cooperative with the mandates of the social worker. So for instance, she continues spending money employing the services of an African-American maid, even when they tell her that she needs to be spending all that money on food and clothing and sort of the basic necessities of life. Obviously, in her mind, it is a necessity to have an African-American maid take care of the laundry and help keep up appearances for the family's um, cultural capital. Right. That's fascinating. Well, thanks very much for uh, coming on and uh, giving us some of your time today, Caroline, and it's talking about your uh, fascinating new book, That Pride of Race and Character, The Roots of Jewish Benevolence in the Jim Crow South. Just uh, a traditional final question on uh, new books and Jewish studies. Can you tell us a bit about your, your next project? So my next project is actually not very Jewish at all. Um, It's about self-defense. The book is called Stand Your Ground, America's Deadly Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. And the book is also a history. And in some ways, the methods are similar, but it's a very different topic. Um, My focus is on sort of a critical genealogy of how we in the United States have conceptualized self-defense and for whom it should be allowed and who gets excluded in our sort of prevailing understandings of lethal self-defense. Well, that sounds really interesting. Thank you. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, This has been uh, Max Kaiser, your co-host on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you so much. Thanks very much to Caroline Elite. That was Caroline E. Light talking about her book, That Pride of Race and Character, 
published by New York University Press in 2014. Thanks very much for listening to New Books in Jewish Studies.